right, all right. Uh, all right, let's open up your Bibles if you got them. Um, we are going to be looking at Matthew 16, um, and we are going to read a passage that may be familiar to you, may not be, um, but it is a passage that whew, is a, a, some strong words are about to be said by our guy Jesus. Um, so open up Matthew 16, and we will start in verse, um, make sure I got this right, Verse, uh, six, uh, verse 21. Okay, 21 to the end of the chapter. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul? For what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. And then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your word, incredibly thankful that we are not left to wander on this earth without the guidance of your scriptures. Father, we are thankful for the Holy Spirit who guides us, directs us, convicts us of sin, reminds us of the love you have for us. Father, may you, through your word, sharpen us today, mature us, correct our wrong thinking, recenter us on the way of following you. Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the way that the church loves the church, seeks to sacrifice and care for one another seeks to see each other in their hurt and their pain, and instead of running away, moves towards one another. Father, may you continue this work at Redeemer. May you be with our people, care for them in their needs. Remind them that you are good and can be trusted. I pray for those who are hurting, those who are physically ill or have chronic issues they are dealing with, 
may your kingdom come. I pray for those who are financially burdened, may your kingdom come. I pray for those whose relationships are strained, may your kingdom come. Father, guide us and direct us. We submit to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over this summer, while we were gone on sabbatical, Diana and I celebrated our 18th anniversary. I know it's shocking given how young we look, uh, but 18 years, and we have been uh, dating or known each other for 20 plus years at this point. We met during school uh, in South Carolina, and we officially, uh, before we officially started dating, I remember in the fall, this is probably my soft, my second year uh, of school, uh, probably fall of 2022, I guess. No, no, no uh, January 2022, and, or 2002. Um, 2002. Gosh, that feels so long ago. Uh, some of you were like seven at that point. Uh, 2002. I remember being smitten for Diana. I had met her through some mutual friends, and I had just fallen hard for her. And I learned quickly that Diane was very studious, and she would study in the library almost every single night of the week. And I had to find the library, but once I did, I found the library, and I decided I too was going to start studying nightly in the library. And so I would set up shop at a table near her and kind of strike up conversation, and I'd repeat this drill almost nightly. I would find any excuse to hang out with her, walks, throw the football together, just any excuse to be around her, her or her group of friends. Well, we did have a bunch of mutual friends, and during that same semester, uh, so spring of that year, I had a class, uh, Health and Exercise Science, with a good friend of hers who's also a childhood friend of mine, a girl named Nicole Aquino. And Diane and I were at the stage at this point where we're hanging out, and apparently it's clear to other people that there's something going on between the two of us. But we have not established that we're dating at this point. Uh, as far as I understood, there was nothing public about our relationship. Um, but one afternoon, Walking back from that health and exercise science class, Nicole asked me straight up about Diane. She said, Drew, it seems like something's going on between the two of you. What's the deal? And I, trying to play it super cool, I was just like, you know, she's, Diane's great, uh, wonderful, then just tried to you know, change the subject as quickly as possible. But our friend Nicole, really Diane's friend at this point, wasn't having it, and she pressed more. She finally looked me square in the eye, and she said, Drew, we've been friends for a long time, but I want you to know that I do not want you to play with my friend. If you're interested in her, step up and be honest about, her, about it, and if you're not, don't lead her on to think that you are. I remember on the sidewalk there feeling like somebody had punched me in the stomach. Nicole, out of love for Diane and I, really mainly love for Diane at this point, <laughs> saw behavior that was not up to her standards, the standards it should have been, and she rebuked me. And it was really hard to hear. Part of me wanted to tell Nicole to go mind her own business or just walk away and act like that conversation never happened. But I knew deep down that she was right. And through Nicole and the Holy Spirit, that conviction led me to step up and have an honest conversation with Diane. 
And maybe some of you can look back at some point in life and recall when a friend called you out. The Bible word there is rebuked you, but did it in love. And maybe you remember that feeling. The sinking pit in your stomach, this nervous sweat around your neck. But if done right, that rebuke, that truth-telling to you was never to shame you. It was in love to correct you for your sake and for your good. Now I want you to imagine our guy Peter here. There should be a slide that pops up. Imagine our guy Peter here in the passage right before this, which we didn't read, but it's up on the screen. <clears throat> Jesus said, says to Peter he's going to actually build the church through him. The words are, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let this sink in. A disciple of Jesus, what an affirmation of Peter. What an absolute honor, a promise. At this point, dude is just ready to just float through the rest of the day. It cannot get better. And then not moments later, Jesus responds to something Peter says by looking at the same Peter, the same one he has just affirmed and made this promise to. He says, get behind me. Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Friends, that's rebuke. And quite frankly, this is the strongest rebuke in the entire New Testament. The strongest rebuke in the entire New Testament. So what is going on here? This should draw our attention. Peter is quite simply, in this moment, trying to force Jesus into a mold of what he assumed the Messiah should be. As Jesus begins to explain how the Messiah has to suffer, the scripture says that Peter took him aside and Peter began to rebuke Correct, Jesus. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So then what is Jesus exactly rebuking Peter for? Well, Peter had an idea in his mind, like a lot of people in that day, that the Messiah, who Jesus was claiming to be, would most certainly not suffer. The thought of Jesus' suffering was just a foreign idea. To Peter, not an option. Quite the opposite, in Peter's mind, Jesus would valiantly triumph over the evil Roman Empire. Instead of suffering, Jesus just said, this is actually what's going to happen. Peter's like, no, 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 no. In my mind, we don't suffer. You don't suffer. We triumph. Brothers and sisters, if we remember back to an earlier part of Matthew, what Peter wants for Jesus is the same thing that Satan himself offered to Jesus. 
Back in chapter 4, Jesus was taken to the top of a mountain by Satan, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Satan offered Jesus the kingdom, but he did so apart from the cross. And Jesus did the same thing to Satan that he does to Peter here. He refuses and rebukes. And now Peter's offering Jesus a kingdom, the kingdom apart from the cross. And Jesus again refuses. Puts Peter in his place and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter wanted Jesus to do and be what he wanted him to do and be. He had his personal desires, his longings, his ideas of who Jesus should be. And he thought he knew better than Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, has anybody seen this show? This is a, this is a tough transition. We're going to make it. <laughs> this is a show called You vs. Wild. And that guy up on the screen, this guy named Bear Grylls, raise your hand if you know who Bear is, or Mr. Grylls. So Bear Grylls, if you don't know who he is, he's kind of this super outdoorsy, kind of wilderness expert. And this show, You vs. Wild, is, is fascinating because it's not just a show, it's like an interactive, it's like half show, half video game. So Bear is on this adventure where he's been dropped in the middle of nowhere. There's a number of different episodes with it, but he has a mission that he is hoping to accomplish and needs to stay alive in doing so. Well, at different points along the way, he has a dilemma, kind of two directions he could go, a decision that he has to make, but instead of him making that decision, instead of him, the outdoorsy wilderness expert, he hands that decision-making power over to you, the viewer. And with your remote, with my remote, I and my kids can make that decision and choose what this man does. So here's an example of what those decisions are. Homeboy, you can't see it here because of the light, but Homeboy's holding up some sort of snail, and he hasn't eaten in 24, 48 hours. He comes across some snail-looking thing, and he asks the viewer at home, should I eat this, yes or no? I watched this show with my seven-year-old son. I'm just going to tell you right now, we don't even need him to explain what that is. We cannot say yes fast enough. Like, we want him to eat it no matter what it is. And so he eats this, and how this episode goes, we say yes, because of course we're going to say yes, if the option is yes, eat this, or no, not. And, you know, it says kind of what happens next, and he he, you know, is shown like, you know, his stomach kind of revolting up when he's like, oh, I guess it has some bacteria on it. I'm going to be sick for days. And Luke, I mean, my seven-year-old Luke and I are like, well, I mean, good luck. Like, we're here. Shouldn't have probably put, you know, your fate in the hands of a seven-year-old, but, you know, keep doing it. And I'll just tell you, like, if Bear was on the top of a hill doing the same scenario, he's hungry and down the left side is, you know, this fresh, like, patch of, you know, blueberry bushes. And he looks at you and he looks at us and says, hey, I could go down there. I'm starving. There's hundreds of, like, plump blueberries for me to eat. Or on this side of the hill, there's, you know, a, a carcass of an antelope that's been there for weeks. It's got maggots all over it. 
but there may be like a couple like, you know, strands of, of meat still on it. I promise you, Luke and I would be like, dude, looks like you need some protein. Like, go for it. Like, knock yourself out. Like, and so this is, the reality is, this is honestly how Peter looked at Jesus. But we, like Peter, we don't get to weigh in on how Jesus chooses to live his life on earth. We don't get to weigh in on who Jesus is. What Peter wanted then for Jesus to be king apart from the suffering of the cross to come was not an option. Jesus knew this, and he calls Peter to lay down his agenda. Actually, as Jesus explains, to follow him later on in this passage means to come and die. We see in the Gospels this idea of being born again. And when we are born again as a follower of Jesus, what we are saying is that our old self is dying away and we're putting on our new identity as a follower of Jesus. But this new identity is not, we don't step into it and we completely understand it. But we spend a lifetime learning who we are in Jesus, who Jesus is and what it is to follow him. So like Jesus does to Peter, we need to accept the rebuke from Jesus for the ways we try to mold him into who we want him to be. Peter's culture back in the day, the water that Peter swam in, taught him that power is everything. Therefore, like I said earlier, Peter's idea, the mold that he had for Jesus, was someone who would valiantly triumph in power over the evil Roman Empire. And that may be, you know, your default, like who you mold Jesus into. But for a lot of us, when we think about the culture that we swim in, it's a culture we've grown up in, especially in the West, of consumerism. So what we do, we envision by default, we tend to see an Americanized Jesus, who is one part genie, that we rub the side of the lamp, ask him for things, and he gives them to us, kind of like a Santa Claus. He's one part cheerleader. No matter what we do, he just continues cheering on the sidelines. We're terrified of correction, so we'll just take the cheering. One part financial advisor or just the teller at the bank when we go to for more money or stuff. And we like to think of Jesus as this great comforter, permissive of the sins that we are permissive of, angry about the sins we're angry about, approving of all the things we approve of. He looks at our sin with a big, aw, shucks, it's okay. Looks at other people's sins very righteously, but never names or calls us to repentance. In essence, in short, we want a Jesus to like the things we like and to hate the things we hate. We want him close enough to offer help, 
but far enough away so he doesn't make us change. Does this sound familiar to any of you all? And I say this not in a you, but in a we. And it's a, and I don't say this word lightly, but when we do this, it's a satanic distortion. We have to let Jesus be who he is. Which means that sometimes who he is contradicts who we want him to be. Sometimes who he is is confusing to you. And when that happens, our call is to submit, not to rebuke. Because he is going to contradict you sometimes. Late Tim Keller says it like this. He says, if your God, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And if I'm honest, to be vulnerable for me, the Jesus that I want is the one that's palatable to everyone at all times, no matter what they believe. In essence, I don't want to suffer from other people's disappointment or frustration, but that's not who Jesus is. John 14:6 says, I am the way. Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's an exclusivity to the gospel. That's hard to swallow sometimes. Matthew 10:28 says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's not the one that's on the coffee mugs usually. <laughs> God's view on gender and sexuality. This is not going to win you popularity contest in 2023. The seriousness of sin. Matthew 18 says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's the Jesus of the Bible. But it's not just this. No, this temptation to mold Jesus to like the things we like and hate the things we hate, the actual heart of this passage, I think, goes back to this idea of suffering. Peter expresses what I would call, what many other pastors as well would call, as the heart of Christian immaturity, that belief in Jesus comes, and that what follows is this idea that I wouldn't, and you wouldn't have to suffer. But Jesus says, no, Peter, I'm going to save you from suffering. I'm going to save you through suffering. I'm going to save the world by a cross, and I'm going to work out my salvation, not through triumph in your life, but so often through your own suffering. This is such a hard message. It was hard for Peter, and it's hard for us. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not even necessarily going to stop your suffering. I'm not even necessarily going to stop your pain and your hurt. But he does promise to redeem it. He promises to give it meaning. He promises to work through. He promises to use your suffering to bring you actual life to you and the world around you. You see, immature Christians today, including myself sometimes, 
cling to this message that Jesus is just some kind of good luck charm. If you walk with him, he's obligated to remove bad things and give you good things. Remove financial hardship. Remove your health problems. Challenges with your kids. Promises that they not only remove the challenges, but maybe they'll just all grow up and be perfect. And your bank accounts through the roof. But so so often what happens when people believe this lie, when bad things happen, they believe that somehow God's not keeping up his end of the deal. But I'm here to tell you, what Jesus is here to tell you is that that's not what he promised. His promise is that he'll work to produce life in you, not despite suffering, but through suffering. And I know this is not the seeker-friendly version of Jesus, and it may not be what you and I want to hear, but friends, this is Jesus. And I promise you that the real Jesus, not some personalized, made-up fairy tale Jesus, but the real Jesus, though saying hard things is the best thing for you, And following him will flat out change your life. So what does it look like? How do we become the people like Peter who's rebuked from this? And his life going forward is a following of Jesus. Not perfect, but a following of Jesus. And I have an illustration that I think might help. Up on the screen you'll see a flat, uh, kind of a vegetable garden, raised bed. This, this is not our house, just in case you get that in your mind. I did appreciate the people that thought that was me on the trampoline last week. Uh, but this is not our house. But what happens in a bed like this, um, you know, a friend of mine sent this to me. It's, you know, after this, this vegetable garden gets hand watered. So, you know, a pitcher of water, whatever you call that when you're a gardener, you kind of, kind of goes up and down the rows, um, up and down the rows, and just waters just the vegetables. So just the good stuff gets watered. Watering goes specifically onto the plants. The next slide is a raised bed. Same idea, but this is after there's been a rain and everything got watered. Not just the vegetables, but everything got watered. And so... The result of everything getting watered is that not only did the vegetables grow, but what else grew all around it? Weeds everywhere. Rachel, you can come on up if you're ready. Weeds grew everywhere. And the point of this is that, and you know this, but the point of this is that whatever you water will grow. Water is the attention you give to something. And if you give your attention to weeds, you give your attention to an Americanized version of Jesus, you give your attention to things apart, so much attention to things apart from the Scripture, that will grow inside of you. But the reality is that on the flip of that, if we want to be a people molded by Jesus and we water, we spend time with Him, we read the Scriptures, we worship Him, we talk to other people about Him, that will grow in us. And over time, it doesn't happen overnight, and so often the weeds 
Same thing like my yard. Somehow the weeds grow at about four times the pace of the actual grass. But over time, that good stuff grows and grows and grows. And when the suffering comes, because it will come, we are people that know Jesus. And so we can absorb the suffering with an understanding, a biblical understanding, that though it is not for eternity, the suffering, it isn't apart from Jesus. And it's for our good and his glory. But the good news for us and for Peter is that this isn't the end of Peter's story or ours. So if you find yourself convicted of trying to mold Jesus into your preferences, know that for your good, he's not only calling you to repentance, but he's welcoming you with open arms to receive grace and forgiveness from him. In this passage, Jesus doesn't kick Peter out. He rebukes him, but he continues to walk with him. So as we come and prepare to take and eat from the nourishment of communion, being reminded of the gospel again, let us first confess sin, confess the ways that we mold Jesus and refuse to accept him for who he is and be honest before the Lord about our sin. So take a moment now and silently confess sin, then we'll walk through the communion liturgy together.